listeners, and I hope that you're well. This episode is an interview with Adriana Drula, and she is a domain expert in something that I think people are talking around a lot right now, but very few people are able to speak directly to, and that is self-compassion. Right now in this moment that so many people are struggling with so many stressors and beating themselves up for not doing enough, for not being enough, for not getting it right, for not being perfect, for how do you be perfect in a pandemic? Um, And Adriana is so knowledgeable on this topic. And in this episode, she shares her personal journey um, of how she learned the import of self-compassion through her children. Uh, And so she's not just an expert in self-compassion in general, that too, but she has original research in self-compassion and parenting. And how do we raise self-compassionate children, children that don't beat themselves up? Um, And spoiler alert, it has to do with how self-compassionate the parents are. So it's a pretty great episode. Uh, Adriana already has a master's degree in positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She's currently a graduate student in compassion therapy uh, at the University of Derby in England. Uh, I've already mentioned her original research in self-compassion and the relationship with parenting. She's the co-founder of Bloom, which is a startup app in Brazil to support parents uh, and caring for their families. She's a host of a Portuguese podcast called Tresser Humano. And uh, you'll we mentioned a few times in the episode jokingly that um, she is a native Portuguese speaker. Um, But she's delightful. And I really hope that you not only enjoy this episode, but get out of it a real awareness of your own compassionate self and some tools to help you along the way, no matter where you are on your journey. So enjoy and be well. Fitness, wellness, well-being, relationships, our own minds, building a life that works for each of us and of course the care of the body that we live those lives in. Welcome to Better Than Fine. This is a podcast about living a life above zero, you know, one that's better than fine. And it's for those people who are looking to explore themselves, one another, and the lessons of the world around us. And we do that by exploring the intersection of traditional wisdom and modern science. And I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. I'm an expert in wellness and well-being with nearly a decade in the fitness industry. I've got a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, which is the scientific study of well-being. But really, I've spent my adult life exploring the human condition, looking for leverage points that I can use to unstick others along their journey. And this podcast is one of those unsticking tools. So let's get to it. Adriana, hello. Welcome to Better Than Fine. Hello, Darlene. It's my pleasure to be here today. (laughs) I'm excited to have you. Uh, I'm excited to talk about something that I feel like a lot of people think they understand, um, but I know from knowing you that you deeply understand, uh, and that's that's compassion. And I know you and I have had a few real deep dive conversations about uh, not just compassion in general, but self-compassion specifically it is it's your passion um i'd go so far as to say in some ways it's your purpose uh can you explain to the listener what is compassion why does it matter like why do you think it's so important right um so compassion is essentially that uh when we see somebody else suffering we have that urge to alleviate suffering right to alleviate suffering in someone else's life so that's compassion 
And usually people know what compassion is because um, it's much easier to feel compassion towards others than compassion towards oneself. So people usually can relate to the concept of compassion, but not self-compassion, right? And research shows that um, people are much more likely to be compassionate towards others than to direct compassion inwards. Um, so self-compassion is essentially the same as compassion, but it's turned inwards. And um, we have a few definitions about self-compassion in, in science. And the one that I like the most is Kristen Neff. And she defines self-compassion as composed of three elements. The first of which is mindfulness, which is um, awareness that we are suffering. So it means that we know that it's, you know, that we are going through uh, a moment of difficulty and we know what that is as opposed to ruminating about it or um, not wanting to face suffering. Um, then the second is common humanity and common humanity, humanity means um, that we know that all humans suffer, not just ourselves. Because what usually happens when we suffer is that we think uh, there's something wrong with us. Right. Mm, so we yeah. suffer or if we um, made a mistake, if we feel inadequate, we think that we are less than others and we feel isolated. So common humanity is the opposite of that. It's knowing that mistakes, challenges and suffering is what makes us human. Mm -hmm. So if anything, it connects us, not separates us. And then the third component is self-kindness and self-kindness just it's the opposite of self-criticism and it just means that um, if you are suffering and suffering is normal in a way is expected right and if there's nothing wrong with you because you're suffering uh, then you can be kind to yourself as you would to a good friend um, and and that is basically self-compassion hmm. so it's it's the awareness that you're going through something it's the recognition that all people are, have gone through difficulty. And it's also then giving yourself the kindness for whatever it is that you are struggling through. Right. It's an adaptive way of dealing with suffering. Yeah. Right. So sometimes we think that we should uh, ignore suffering or, um, you know, let's think about something else and not think about this uh, that hurts. Um, and what happens is that when we, try not to think about it um that thing that we try not to think about uh paradoxically grows in our mind right so mm -hmm. it's, it's, in, uh, in english we'd say like don't think about pink elephants now you're thinking about pink elephants. or a white bear oh do you guys say white bear <laughs> uh for those for those listening adriana is uh in brazil she speaks portuguese that's why she's got that right. awesome accent um, so I'm trying my for, best to uh, make myself under, uh, understandable. I mean, you just managed <laughs> to pull out paradoxically. I think you will be fine. <laughs> um, but to that, uh, have some self-compassion for your own accent. I know. I'm, I'm doing it right now. You are doing it right now. Thank you for demonstrating in real time. Um, but you, you bring up this great point that so often when we're going through something difficult, we tend to ruminate and like so what is the the benefit of having mindfulness without rumination like is that part of the the cocktail the equation of self-compassion 
Yes. Um, so you can't really um, give yourself kindness or even know what you're going through unless you know what you're going through, right? So mindfulness here has more to do with accuracy. So it's knowing uh, what hurts and why it hurts, but not making it bigger or smaller than, than what it really is, right? So that's the, there's no self-compassion without mindfulness. Because really what we're doing when we're ruminating is that we're really creating a scenario that's bigger than what it is, right? Mm. And that will usually take up all your mental resources, right? So you cannot think about common humanity that everybody goes through it because for you, it's so big and it's huge and affects all areas of your life. So it, it seems like the other challenge that that would present is rumination is then also taking up your, your problem solving resources, right? So like, so I guess when there are other positive emotions, right? When other studies of positive emotions talk about the way it shifts cognition. And it seems like that implies that having self-compassion also changes your cognition in a way that allows you to then move forward. Is that accurate? Yes. And self-compassion is a positive emotion, right? It's not an obvious positive emotion because it's not laughter. It's not humor, but it is a positive emotion because self-compassion has to do with you being there for yourself. So it's the same emotion that you get when, you know, you get a hug from a friend and you're going through something that's really hard so you feel supported and you feel comforted and you know like you, you know that somebody else has your back um so self-compassion is knowing how to have your own back nice. right so that in a sense uh makes us stronger to deal with whatever is hard um and it is a, a form of positive emotion for sure it also seems like it would be a big component of resilience then Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, I'm, I'm already obsessed with this conversation because for all the times that I've talked to you about your love of self-compassion, uh, I don't know that I have been so sold on self-compassion as I am right now. Um, <laughs> but you don't just study self-compassion generally. You specifically study self-compassion in parents, which I think is a cool, interesting and very important angle. Uh, and that is also because you are a mom. Um, so I'd love for you to just share with us how being a mom has influenced your own study of psychology and of compassion and, and self-compassion. You share that, share that inspiration with us. Right. So it's a long story, um, how I got into self-compassion in parenting. Um, as an individual, as a person, self-compassion changed my life, really. Like when I first went through a self-compassion uh, course with Kristen Neff, I went through an intensive self-compassion retreat, like it was five days and six nights. Um, that really changed the way I saw and I faced whatever was hard. And you're right when you say it has all to do with resilience. Um, I felt that in my life personally, and also research shows that, right? So self-compassionate uh, people, they uh, deal better with stress. They, let get, uh, they, they get depressed less. Um, they're also less anxious. Um, there is uh, a link between self-compassion and uh, body appreciation. Uh, there's a link between self-compassion and less shame. Um, so I, I felt that in my personal life. And how I got that link between self-compassion and parenting was in one of our classes, actually. Well, it, it all started in one of our classes um, during MAP. 
And I don't know if you remember, but it was that class uh, that Marty uh, asked us, or actually, you know, he, he was talking about depression and how depression was rising. And he said that he didn't know the exact reason why that happened since we're living better lives in a sense, like when you look at stats, right? Uh, yet depression is rising. Then we had another class with John Haidt and he was talking about how the rise in depression happened, especially between the, the ages of 10 and 17, like up until 21, right? But then after 21, that rate of increase was going down. And this is specifically so referring to at this at this moment in history, we're seeing an increase, a spike in depression, anxiety, self-harming behaviors in adolescents right. who have grown up with uh, social media access uh, and access to technology, uh, I think is what you're referring to, right? Yeah, that's right. Jonathan Haidt's absolutely. current research. Right, absolutely. And he also talked about a little bit about uh, overprotection and how uh, we're having less kids and when you get overprotective of kids, they, um, they get, essentially they're less resilient. But in any case, what inspired me um, or actually didn't inspire me of, you know, maybe if, if anything, um, it, I started to ask myself, why are uh, children getting more depressed, especially adolescents? And why is social media so bad for kids and how we can, um, you know, maybe how I could myself in my experience as a mother, um, how I could maybe help my child navigate this world um, in a way that, you know, a little bit um, with more resilience. And then uh, what I found was the work of Kristen Neff and Karen Bluth and others on self-compassion. And essentially what they say is that, uh, you know, in social media, they don't specifically talk about social media, but we can easily make the link. What they say is when we are um, focusing too much on self-esteem, um, so self-esteem has to do with comparisons, right? It has to do with you feeling better than others or comparing yourself to an ideal that it's either internal or, or external and feeling good about yourself as you compare yourself to that ideal. Um, so it turns out that self-esteem is, first of all, it, it fluctuates a lot in life. And in adolescence is when we have the least amount of self-esteem usually, right, in the lifespan. And then the second um, reason is that when we are comparing ourselves or when the kids are comparing themselves to, you know, like, photos they're not real and filters and all of that kind of stuff and you know people that seem extremely happy at all times and doing fun stuff and you're not it seems like you're the only one that suffers right and um self-compassion is an is an an antidote sorry for my english no don't be um, sorry at all self-compassion Self-compassion, yeah. <laughs> so it's an antidote to that kind of comparison because self-compassion has to do with finding your own value or knowing that you're valuable just because you exist. Yeah. Right? So you, that your mistakes and your flaws don't define you. So you don't need to prove yourself better. You don't need to get anywhere to feel better to know that you have value. Um, so that's how I, I got into the importance of self-compassion for kids. 
And Karen uh, Bluth, she has a lot of research and books on that, uh, the reason why self-compassion is so important for teens. Yeah. And then my question was, you know, as a parent, how can I, you know, try to foster self-compassion in my kids? And from that question, I think you came up with what I think is an elegant research question that I was so surprised had no one had asked, no one had hypothesized before. So can you just share what your big question was going into your, I know your study is not published yet, um, but, but when your own work. Yeah. So uh, what I knew from previous studies is that self-compassion, self-compassion usually is associated with, um, uh, you know, like kids that feel valued by their parents for who they are is associated with attachment um so there's a a lot not a lot but the research that's out there shows a clear relationship between attachment and self-compassion not just in kids but even in adults and uh gilbert's work shows that there is a biological basis right for self-compassion so what happens is when the infant cries and the mother uh goes there and you know you you um, comfort that baby and you do it over and over and over again. Essentially what happens is that system uh, is maturing and the kids learning uh, how to, um, how to comfort, right? Their own stress. Self-soothe. Right. But, but with that um, behavior of care, right. Of, of, um, the kid, the kid learns to be there for himself or herself. Yeah. Essentially. Well, well and also um, just the security that even if something bad happens, something, someone's going to come. Okay, good. I'm safe. Now I know that because I'm safe, I can start figuring it out for myself. Right. Like that's the, this process of, of secure attachment. Right. And yeah. And you, and you learn how to deal with, you know, you, you learn how to deal with uh, difficult emotions um, through that care, uh, the caring system, because it's a neuroaffective system, right? So we have like the alarm system, we have other systems like neuroaffective system, and um, the affiliated system, right? It's it's uh, it's essentially trained uh, yeah. when you are when you are a kid. So um, my question was, okay, so if we know that parenting has something to do with the development of self-compassion, who are the parents that are, you know, most suited or better suited to be there for their kids and to have, you know, even when they're um, older, right, have an open channel of communication, uh, you know, accept their kids for who they are, which means accept uh, that kids are also imperfect. Uh, kids don't need to be different than who they are to, you know, to have value. Who are those parents? And to me, it seemed logical that those would be self-compassionate parents. Um, because when you are self-compassionate, when you accept your own flaws, it's also easier to accept other people's flaws, right? When you know how to self-soothe and that you're valued for who you are, then it's easier to model that as well mm-hmm. um, for your kids. So that was my main question. And that wasn't a question that, you know, that um, 
any other paper had uh, addressed. And so we uh, surveyed 246 pairs of mothers and teenage children between 13 and 15 years old in the US. And we gave them a, a bunch of questionnaires essentially to find out, you know, is self-compassion, um, is mother self-compassion associated with adolescent self-compassion? And if so, um, we tried to, you know, to measure some of the routes of transmission. So why, if there's an association, can we, you know, obviously we can't talk about causation because it's, um, it wasn't, um, it was just a one-time study, but um, we wanted to get a hint for, as of, you know, why, um, if those kids are more self-compassionate, why that is. I want to backtrack for just a second, because I think you bring up something really important and I want to highlight it, which is that so often the parents that I've worked with, the people I've coached, the people I've, I've helped and trained will talk about teaching their kids things. And they'll talk about it in this abstract terms of like, how do I teach my kid blah? And what I have found in most of my work has been modeling, right? You have to figure it out for yourself if you want your kid to know it, because you can say something, you can lecture all you want, but they're gonna see you doing the opposite. They're gonna be able to tell, they're gonna be able to intuit, right? Because we underestimate how much our kids are little intuition machines. And oh, what yeah. you found, what your theory, and, it, and again, it blows my mind every time I think about that no one else had drawn this parallel that like, oh, if you want a resilient, self-compassionate, empathetic, aware kid be a resilient self-compassionate empathetic aware human um and you know i have a, a an example of that like a real example which is in my life um because when i started i have a 10 year old and a four year old so my oldest daughter went right when she was born i was already studying parenting and i thought i knew everything that she needed to have uh from me to grow up a secure and confident person, right? So I essentially, what I did is I, I had that um, illusion that if, if I were a perfect mom, then she would be okay. And I tried to be a perfect mom for a very long time. And my daughter was growing up very nicely and she, you know, she was confident and then she loved to sing. And when she was about five years old, she stopped singing. Hmm. And I asked her, like, you know, why you only sing when I'm around, but no one else, you know, what's making you stop singing? And she was being self-critical about her singing, right? She, for some reason, figured out that her voice wasn't, you know, like a professional singer's voice and she stopped singing. And what I want to say here is that I... I knew all of Carol Dweck's work. I knew how to complement the process and not the outcome. So I would never say you're such a great singer. I would always say, you know, like you're, you know, you're making your best. And I would always highlight her effort. And I essentially was doing everything in theory, at least my talk, right? So whatever what I, I was saying to her, everything that she needed to listen not to grow up being self-critical. However, 
in doing that, and not just not because I was doing that, but my way of being was very perfectionist. And she saw um, the need that I had to be perfect all the time and how my mistakes were aversive to me. So in a way, she was essentially learning from a model, not learning from whatever I was saying, right? I was telling her how important it was to make mistakes, yet I couldn't deal with my mistakes. So nothing that I said really made any sense, right? And, um, and she was growing up to be very self-critical. Um, and I found that it, it was when I began to model, um, you know, being compassionate towards myself, not lecturing her to be self-compassionate, but when I was making my process clear to her, you know, like, oh, you know, like I really felt bad about this, but then I remembered that, you know, everybody makes mistakes and I'm human. And then, you know, I gave myself this, I don't know, time off or whatever I needed and I regrouped and then, you know, I tried again um, and, you know, and life is like that. And then I, she started to also um, open herself a little bit more towards, you know, like she, she was being more self-compassionate, not that she's 100% self-compassionate, but yeah, I think that's the, that's a good thing to highlight. Yeah. I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. Um, Cause I think it leads really nicely into this other idea that you have shared with me. Um, you call it the myth of the perfect parent. Can you talk about what that is and why it matters. Right, so um, I guess the story illustrates, right, the myth of the perfect parent, because in society we think that, um, and we know all about parenting today, right? So perhaps when we were kids, perhaps our parents didn't have that much pressure to be perfect because they didn't know um, everything that could happen if a kid you know, I think today, and it's a good thing that we know that we are responsible uh, for who our kids will turn out to be, and, you know, that we should try our best. Um, and today we know that, I mean, even um, the expression of a child's DNA, right, is affected by parenting. So it's a big responsibility. I mean, epigenetics, and, right? Like the epigenetic right. expression. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, it's a big responsibility, and we know that we do have less kids, so that become even a bigger respons bigger responsibility, right? So I think what happens is that um, when we know uh, everything that our kid needs and that we are a big influence to who that person is gonna become and we love that child more than anything in the world, they wanna be perfect, right? Um, and then it's a myth because we're not perfect, right? It doesn't matter how much we try to be perfect, we're not perfect. And when we make mistakes and we want to be perfect, our mistakes are very aversive. Um, what happens is that we don't want to deal with our mistakes most of the time. So it's very common that parents will, um, you know, maybe yell at the child and say, well, I only yelled at you because you did something else. Right, um, because we don't want to see that. Yes, we we did something bad here. We need to be perfect, right? Um, so that's the one thing um, that I think happens when we we try to be perfect. But not only that, and then also even even if we could be perfect, then that child is not perfect because that child is a human, right? And then 
it must be pretty bad to grow up in a house where you were the only person that's not perfect when you're the only one that makes mistakes. So a child needs to learn from the parents what is he or she going to do when she messes up, right? And she needs to know that messing up is normal. And she needs to know that sometimes she will hurt people that she loves, right? We parents sometimes hurt our kids. And, and that's a good opportunity to you know, say, you know, I hurt you and I'm sorry. And sometimes we do that. And I want to, you know, make it up to you. And how can we make this better? So when we do that, we're modeling uh, for the child what she or he's going to do when he's in the same situation. So even if it could be perfect parents, that wouldn't be uh, good for the child, right? Yeah. Yeah, I felt I felt it in my heart a little bit when you said it must be awful to be the kid growing up where they perceive everyone else as perfect and they're the only one that's flawed. Like that must... Yeah. I think all of us can relate to that feeling of imposter syndrome or inadequacy at some point in our lives, but just that, like you got me in the gut on that one, the idea of like that little kid that no one is, no one is modeling mistake for. And it, as much as I've considered this phrase, this myth of the perfect parent, uh, since you first said it to me, uh, I don't know that I had really considered it. I had been thinking of it more from the parent angle of the fallacy of perfection, right? Because there are so many times in life that we have dichotomy situations. We have no win scenarios where there is no right answer. And so to me, the myth of the perfect parent was the, the lack of the potential for it to exist, not because of their human flaws, but because so often in life we are presented with situations that don't have you know, an A or B. But underneath that is the kid that is suffering through the experience of never seeing their primary parent be human because they're so invested in being perfect uh, and how right. hard that would be. Yeah, yeah, you have a point. It's, it's, it's impossible to be. Actually, there's no perfection, Yeah. right? But even if there was perfection, then if, you're, if you have a human kid, then you must be human, right? So if, you, if you have a human kid, then that kid, it's obviously not perfect. Yeah, permission to be human. Yeah. So if you are the person listening to this that is on board, right? Like you, they, are, they have bought into the self-compassion bandwagon. Um, they, they're drinking the Adriana Kool-Aid. Like what are, how does one go about building self-compassion because I'm betting that there is someone listening to this who's like well what do I do now well one simple way of thinking about self-compassion is how would you treat a friend in the same situation because sometimes and most of the times we're compassionate towards others that we love and not towards ourselves right so how would you uh, I don't know sometimes if if uh, you know if you catch yourself uh, you know, during a moment of difficulty or you made, a, you made a mistake and you're beating yourself up, maybe thinking about, you know, like if, if it were a different person here, somebody I love, if I were my own kid right now, right? If my kid had grown up and my kid now is an adult and my kid made that mistake, what would I say to that person or to this kid? Or and how would just, I want them to speak to themselves? Right. And, and just, you know, and, and then say, those words to yourself um 
there are a bunch of ways that we can practice self-compassion. Self-compassion is an ability, so it's an important thing to say, right? So it's something that is learnable. Um, and there are a ton of ways uh, to do it. Uh, one of the ways are, is meditating through meditation. So self-compassion, there's a, a website uh, that's called selfcompassion.org. It's uh, Kristin Neff's website. And she has a bunch of meditations on her website that, you know, people at home can try. Yeah, I'll link um, that in the show notes. Yeah, and there are all other exercises too. There are writing exercises. But essentially, if you can remember, you know, the three elements of self-compassion at any point of your life, that's difficult. So the first one is mindfulness. So you have to acknowledge that you're going through something hard, right? The second one is common humanity. Then think about, you know, like this is human. Everybody goes through hardships at times and there's nothing wrong with me for being human. And then the third is self-kindness. How can I be kind to myself right now? What do I need? And can I give myself now because I'm human? Yeah, fantastic. Um, I feel like we've given the listener an awful lot to think about. Uh, so where, where can someone find you out on the internet? I know if they caveat that they'll find it in Portuguese, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, I'm lucky that I'm not, uh, doing anything in English cause I don't speak it very well. Says the but, woman um... <laughs> who just recorded a beautiful articulate podcast. Um, I think <laughs> I would like to hold up the mirror of mindfulness to your excellent English. Excellent English. Oh, um, yeah. So I do have a website, which is Adriana Drula, D as in David, R-U-L-L-A. But that is in Portuguese. I'm on Instagram as well. And it, there is Adriana Drula as well, with only one N. Um, and that's pretty much it. But and it'll, again, be, it's it'll be linked Portuguese. in the show notes. And eventually, I'm sure the fascinated listener will hunt out your uh, paper when it's published um, that draws right. that parallel link from the self-compassion of the parent to their teenager, a potential antidote to every, to a lot of what we are struggling with as a society in terms of our, uh, our young girls and, and their own self-harming behaviors, whether it be physical or mental. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing this with thank us. And you. thank you for this, what I think is this very important work um, to move us all forward in our own acceptance of our humanity. Thank you, Darlene. And uh, it was great to be here.